everybody. Welcome to Profoundly Pointless. My name is Nick. Coming up in this episode, infectious diseases and breakfast foods. This is a new virus. Um, we don't have immunity in, in the human population for this. And so it's kind of unknown how quickly it's spreading. And with a disease like measles, if the herd immunity drops below 95%, the probability that we will have a measles epidemic exponentially increases. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing diseases that we, you know, used to have uh, eradicated um, come back. We are facing a situation where by the year 2050, 10 million people every year are going to be dying from superbugs. And these are bacteria that have acquired resistance to multiple antibiotics. The doctors basically gave up. They said we don't have a single antibiotic left in our arsenal to fight this thing. And I hit the internet and did my own research and found a hundred year old forgotten cure called phage therapy. I want to thank you guys so much for joining us. If you get a chance, like, download, subscribe, share, we really appreciate it. It really helps us out. Our first guest is an infectious disease expert, and she has some really remarkable insight into just how big of a role these infectious diseases are playing right now and what they're going to be like, and how they're going to impact us in the future. And she also has this remarkable story of how this lost treatment saved her husband's life. This is epidemiologist Dr. Stephanie Strathdy. What's happening in China? We have a situation where we have a zoonotic infection, which means it's an infection that has jumped from animals to people, and it has caused an epidemic that is now on the verge of being a pandemic. That means a worldwide epidemic. When we hear those kind of words, like when somebody says pandemic epidemic, I'm imagining like I go outside and there's bodies in the street, but what is that... What does that really mean? Like, how worried about this should I be? Well, an epidemic is when you have a larger number of cases than expected. And in this case, uh, this is a new virus. Um, we don't have immunity in, in the human population for this. And so it's kind of unknown how quickly it's spreading and what the case fatality rate is. That means, you know, the extent to which this is a very pathogenic virus. So as uh, more information is gathered, we're going to get a better handle on it. But it's so important to have early intervention to be able to respond to cases and to quarantine people and to uh, ensure that the, there's not rapid spread. And unfortunately, um, you know, the horse is already out of the barn and um, we've got a situation where the World Health Organization has declared a public health emergency of international concern related to this uh, epidemic which now we have more reported cases than in the SARS epidemic from two decades ago. So this is, I mean, this is, looks like it's going to be a big deal then. Well, it's certainly already a big deal, but um, right now it depends where you live and who your contacts are. Um, most of the cases have occurred in China to date, but we live in a globalized world. And so, uh, you know, and we're on the verge of Chinese New Year. And although a lot of uh, mobility between populations has been curtailed as a result of some of the um, interventions that the Chinese government has put in place, there was still millions of people that left Wuhan before, um, the, you know, the travel restrictions took effect. Do we know anything about the virus itself? Well, it is a coronavirus. It's so named because um, under an electron microscope, it, it looks like um, it has a crown. Coronaviruses have been associated with zoonoses, as I mentioned. That, that's the, the jumping of a virus from animals to humans. And um, in terms of the previous epidemic with SARS, the a source of the infection was found to be a civet cat, which is a wild cat that uh, is out at night. And um, in this epidemic, um, it's thought that the origin is a snake um, and with an intermediary host of a bat. Is it more deadly, less deadly? Is there anything about the conditions in China that would allow this to spread more? Well, in terms of being deadly, that's the extent, that's really what, in epidemiology terms, we talk about the case fatality rate. We don't have enough information to know yet what the case fatality rate is. There are some early signs that it may be less 
uh, deadly than SARS or MERS, which was the uh, Middle Eastern coronavirus that um, we've seen um, have uh, be associated with epidemics in, in previous years. Um, and it's it's clear that there's likely to be underreporting of cases because the diagnostic kits that are available um, have have run out in some in some places in China. When we're talking about any kind of an infectious disease, like how do you keep it from spreading? Well, it all depends on um, what route of, of transmission occurs. This is a, um, a virus that is spread through, um, you know, respiratory um, aerosolized, um, you know, droplets. So the same way that influenza is passed by someone sneezes or coughs, or perhaps they cough on their hands and then, you know, they shake someone's hand and that person touches their nose or their mouth. That's um, a very common ways of transmission. We're still learning about how infectious this um, organism is. And so so, um, you know, we'll be monitoring that, that carefully. But in some cases, I mean, if you look at measles, you know, um, one measles case can infect, you know, you know, 10, 15 people. Um, and so um, this virus, we don't yet know um, what it's, uh, what we call the basic reproductive rate. We don't know what that is yet. Um, but once um, we get a better handle on it, um, we will be able to uh, make better recommendations. But at this point, we have to be very cautious. We have to assume that um, it's, it's easily transmitted because we're seeing person-to-person transmission now. That means that people who haven't had direct um, contact with um, uh, people from from China and and going to China themselves. So uh, we've started to see these cases now reported in other countries where it's becoming a person-to-person transmission. And in those cases, even if the case fatality rate is low, like 2 to 3%, if there's, you know, tens of thousands of people infected, that's still like a lot of people dying. Last question kind of about this aspect of it, just so I understand a little bit. Let's say on a scale of 1 to 10, 1, don't have to be worried about this at all. 10, hide in your basement, don't go outside. Like, where do you think we are right now? Well, I mean, I would never say hide in your basement and don't go outside. Um, but at this point, um, I'm concerned as an infectious disease epidemiologist and as a citizen. Um, I think that we need to guard against um, a, an epidemic of fear because that promotes um, a lot of misinformation and hysteria. Um, social media is a great way to share information, but, you know, don't uh, jump to clickbait. Um, look to see what the source is. Make sure that it's valid. And, um, and let's, you know, be human about this. Um, we should not be discriminating or stigmatizing people from China um, because they've been – in this unfortunate situation, epidemics and zoonoses happen um, in many other um, countries, and this is not the first epidemic, and it won't be the last. How did you get into this field of study? Well, you know, I was an undergraduate student at the University of Toronto studying microbiology, and I was really lousy at um, lab work. I kept contaminating my Petri dishes, and I was really sad because I wanted to be a scientist. And then I learned that there's this other kind of science called public health, and epidemiology is one discipline in public health. And um, it's really outward-facing. It looks at, you know, whole populations of people and instead of, you know, at the, at the microscopic level. Level. And when I was a student, the AIDS epidemic hit. Um, actually, one of my professors handed out the exams one day, and the next day he wasn't in class anymore. And the, a couple weeks later, he passed away. And we learned that he had pneumocystis carinii pneumonia, which is an opportunistic infection associated with HIV. And so that was the first time it touched my life. That was 1986. But when I decided to get into AIDS research, my best friend and my PhD advisor died from AIDS within the same year. And it was like, almost like a calling, you know, I really felt driven to try to put myself out of a job, so to speak. But I remember years ago, hearing that this was essentially just a death sentence. And now you don't hear very much about it. What has what changed? Like, how were we able to kind of get a handle on this? Or did we get a handle on it? Well, you know, the first um, 
five cases of HIV infection were um, diagnosed in 1981, um, before we even had a name for the virus. And um, since then, you know, it has become a pandemic. Um, but we know a lot more about HIV and how it's spread. And we have also developed treatments, um, antiretroviral treatments, which um, can curtail the transmission and the replication of this virus um, and can help people live longer. And so um, if you have undetectable viral load, that's a measure of the amount of virus in your bloodstream, um, then you are uh, essentially untransmissible. So undetectable equals untransmissible. And that's terrific. That means that people with HIV, as long as they're taking their medication um, pr properly, and um, this is, you know, generally right now, um, it's, it's considered that you need to take this, this medication for the rest of your life. Um, you can, you know, almost have a, a normal, healthy uh, life with a, a fairly normal life expectancy. Is AIDS unique in that, or have we been able to get a handle on a lot of these kind of big infectious diseases that have come through? Well, it all depends. I mean, influenza is a situation right now where um, it's, uh, you know, very serious for um, many people who have immunocompromised um, systems. And um, we need a universal flu vaccine in order to be able to really combat that disease rather than trying to, to predict each year which strains of influenza will be circulating and trying to match the virus um, to the vaccine. Um, so... In HIV, we don't yet have a vaccine that's available, um, and, and that's also an area of, of, of intense research. Talking about vaccines, what do you think about people who don't want to get them, who don't want to immunize their children? Well, I think it's ex extremely unfortunate that we have a lot of evidence that vaccines work, um, and those that are recommended by the uh, agencies like the World Health Organization or in the U.S., the Centers for Disease Control, um, they're really important because, um, you know, measles alone um, can be not only um, cause infection that's very serious in adults, but it can be transmitted to the to the fetus. And it can also, um, is a virus that um, its infection can wipe out immunity to other viruses. And so uh, it's very important that people get their childhood vaccinations and, um, and become educated and really to um, question where information is coming from, because there's a lot of misinformation, especially on social media. How do you kind of deal with that where somebody seems to, they just, they're not going to believe what experts such as yourself say no matter what you say? Well, I try to educate people with the facts. Um, I show them scientific papers and I try to distill those down and um, and to also point out that a lot of the the um, myths that are out there have been perpetuated by people that have been, you know, debunked. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm just very sad that we're in a situation where we know it works. We know that vaccines can save lives and we still have, you know, millions of people um, not taking them. And in fact, what that does is it lowers what's called herd immunity. Herd immunity is the immunity that, that exists in a population. And with a disease like measles, if the herd immunity drops below 95%, the probability that we will have a measles epidemic, you know, exponentially increases. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing diseases that we, you know, used to have uh, eradicated um, come back because some people feel like um, they're, they're concerned. And um, you can't really see um, these infections that don't occur. Unfortunately, what you see are the very, very rare side effects and that those get conflated and, and cause hysteria. So, But, you know, there is another major epidemic that I think that it's really important that your listeners know about, and that's the, the superbug crisis. Um, we are facing a situation where by the year 2050, 10 million people, every year are going to be dying from superbugs. And these are bacteria that have acquired resistance to multiple antibiotics. When we're talking about superbugs, now you've had a very personal experience with them. Tell me about that. Well, you know, I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist, um, but I've spent most of my career focused on HIV. And what crept up on me is the global superbug crisis. Um, and it hit in a really personal way. My husband and I were on vacation in Egypt um, in November 2015, and he got, 
you know, sick after eating a seafood meal on top of this lovely cruise ship. And I just thought he had food poisoning, you know, and I, you know, tried to get him to drink lots of water. And when he wasn't improving, um, I, I sought medical help and they rushed him to the local clinic. There wasn't a hospital in, in Luxor where we were based. And um, they diagnosed pancreatitis, which is an inflammation of the pancreas. But it turned out that was just, a, you know, a symptom of a much larger problem. He had this abscess in his abdomen, the size of a small football that was caused by a gallstone that lodged in his bile duct. And long story short, um, after he was medevaced first to Frankfurt, Germany, and then back home to San Diego where we work, um, this organism that was um, had moved into this nice, cozy little apartment of, a, of an abscess in his abdomen um, became resistant to all antibiotics. And its name is Acinetobacter bomanii. I don't expect people to have heard about it, but its nickname is Arachobacter because so many veterans come back from the Middle East with this organism. My husband nearly died from this. In fact, um, the doctors basically gave up. They said we don't have a single antibiotic left in our arsenal to fight this thing. And I hit the internet and did my own research and found a 100-year-old forgotten cure called phage therapy. Um, which is short for bacteriophage therapy. And bacteriophages are viruses that have naturally evolved to attack bacteria. And they're everywhere. There's 10 million, trillion, trillion phages on the planet. 30 billion of these phages move in and out of our bodies every day. But if you have a certain kind of bacteria that you want to kill, you need to find the right phage to match it, to kill it. And so they had been discovered 100 years ago and used to treat bacterial infections. But when penicillin, the first antibiotic, came on the Scene. The West forgot all about phage therapy, and it was only being used um, consistently in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union in particular. So it's considered experimental in the West, but I was able to convince the doctors treating my husband, who luckily were our colleagues, that this was something that we should try. And I reached out to total strangers around the world who were researching this, and they found phages to match my husband's bacteria, and we injected them into his body, a billion viruses per dose. And even though he was in what's called multi-stage organ failure, he was within hours of dying, he, he lifted his head off the pillow and kissed his daughter's hand three days later. And now this is being upheld as a potential answer to the superbug crisis. I mean, what was that like for you personally, just watching all of this happen to go from what seemed like, look, he's not going to make it to recovering? Well, it's, it's hard to put into words. That's why we decided to write our book, The Perfect Predator. But um, it was, first of all, I felt as an epidemiologist that I'd been blindsided. You know, I really felt like I had a handle on, you know, the, the biggest um, potential health crisis in the world. And this one took me off guard because this was an organism that I used to plate on my Petri dishes back in the 1980s. And when I was a microbiology student at the University of Toronto, and all of a sudden now, a couple decades later, this organism is the number one you know, superbug on the WHO's list of the most deadly to humankind. And I thought, how could this happen? Well, you know, it's our misuse and overuse of antibiotics that has really fueled this, especially in livestock. About 70% of, of antibiotics that are used in many countries are used to make animals fatter. Uh, they're used as growth promoters, not even to prevent or treat disease. So we really need to stop doing that or we're going to be seeing a lot more people dying of superbugs. When, and that's a concern because even if we're not necessarily us as humans having the antibiotics, we're getting it in the stuff that we eat. Is that how it works? Well, there's that, but also, you know, people who are handling animals either before or after slaughter are exposed to these multi-drug resistant, um, you know, bacteria because we're using the same um, antibiotics in some cases in animals as we're using in humans. So um, the last uh, resort antibiotic, colistin, um, it was still being used in, in China um, in, in pigs um, until 2015 when they discovered the first cases of colistin resistance in humans that were dying. And that um, plasmid, which is a ring of DNA that carries antibiotic resistance genes, that was actually in my husband's bacteria as well. It, by the time anybody looked, it was already in 30 countries. So this is like a global concern, and a lot of people um, are not aware of it. And also the fact that phage therapy is something that we can use when antibiotics are failing. And so my uh, partner, um, 
and I, um, Dr. Chip Schooley, um, we co-direct now the first dedicated phage therapy center in North America at the University of California, San Diego. It's called IPATH, the Center for Innovative Phage Applications and Therapeutics. We've treated several other patients as a direct result of my husband's case, and Dr. Schooley has consulted on cases internationally. Um, the turnaround in some of these cases is miraculous, and um, now the NIH is funding clinical trials on phage therapy. So we're really excited that to see it's moving forward. So in terms of like the typical medical establishment, however you want to define that necessarily, when we talk about phage therapy, where is that? Is that in the early stages? Is this pretty acceptive or are your typical doctors slash whatever you want to call them still looking at this skeptically? Well, in the former Soviet Union and in uh, parts of Eastern Europe like Poland, phage therapy is, is standard of care, um, and, and you can get it very easily. But in the Western world, it is still experimental. Um, we need those clinical trials to happen in order for phage therapy to be approved by agencies like the FDA. So um, most infectious disease doctors in North America have heard of phage therapy, but the average internal medicine doctor probably hasn't, and we're working very hard to expand awareness. Um, but if anybody's listening who um, whose loved one has a superbug that is not responding to antibiotics, you can email us at iopath at ucsd.edu and we can see if we can help. In a general sense, when you, as an epidemiologist, what kind of worries you the most about infectious diseases? Like what do you think is the big concern for us moving forward? On, on what type of infectious disease you're talking about. Um, certainly, if, if we're talking about superbugs, the, the problem is that most people are unaware that um, it's a big problem and that by the year 2050, more people are going to be dying of superbugs than motor vehicle accidents or cancer and that really, as a result of that, it's um, a bigger threat in our lifetimes than climate change. And climate change is only going to make the superbug crisis worse because um, in heat, bacteria tend to multiply a lot faster. Is there any, you know, one of the things that I've heard about climate change is that we could potentially unlock viruses and diseases that used to exist in the past that have been hiding in the ice. Is there any truth to that? Absolutely. In fact, there have been some cases um, in Siberia, for example, where um, the thawing of the permafrost led um, to anthrax spores being um, liberated. And, uh, you know, those are um, anthrax is a, is a bacterial infection that is um, common in animals and reindeer can get it. And so there were reindeer carcasses that were harboring these anthrax spores. And it led to not only an epidemic of anthrax in reindeer, but also in people as well. And luckily that was curtailed. But um, it's scary to think that um, there's there's lots of indirect effects of, of climate change. And unfortunately, we're going to be seeing both of these problems um, co-occurring over the next couple of decades. Why are we still, I mean, why do we still struggle with the flu? Like that seems to be like we, we haven't figured this out yet. Well, the flu, it, it certainly, influenza isn't just one virus. There's influenza A and influenza B. And within those two types of influenza, there's different strains or subtypes. And um, they shift. Um, and um, so there's two, actually, components of, of the influenza virus. Um, this might be a little much in the weeds for some of your listeners, but um, hemagglutinin is, is a protein on the coat of the virus, and it causes hemoglobin to, um, to clot. And um, so your body can generate antibodies to that. We call that the H protein. And then there's another protein called neuraminidase, and that's inside the influenza virus. And that's, we call that the N part of influenza and you, your body can generate antibodies against that. And so over time, as you know, we've learned more about influenza as it, as we see it change, um, it gets different labels like H1N1. So the public health experts have to uh, predict which, um, subtypes of, of influenza A and B are going to be circulating each, each year. And that takes a lot of mathematical modeling 
and knowledge about you know population movements and sometimes we get it right and sometimes we don't and uh, but you know even if you have a vaccine for influenza that's 55 percent efficacious that's still worth getting you know honestly because even if you get influenza it's likely to be a lot less serious when my husband was in the hospital fighting his superbug infection two doors down was a man in his 50s who'd been previously healthy who acquired influenza and had complications and he died um, and it was a shock. I mean, I saw his wife and two little kids go in to see him. And, you know, those kids are growing up now without their dad. So, you know, this is, is not just uh, like I think a lot of people think, oh, the flu and they conflate it with the common cold. No, influenza, you know, you get a fever and you're sick for at least a week. And um, so this is not the common cold that we're talking about. Um, are you ready for the hard slash listener submitted questions? Sure. When you look at disaster movies that have infectious diseases, which one do you think is the most realistic? Like that could actually happen. Which one is the least realistic? Well, you know what? I'm not much of a movie person, but, um, our, my family's story, The Perfect Predator, is uh, has been optioned by a major Hollywood player, and I'm going to make sure they get the science right. <laughs> cool. That's really cool. Congratulations. Thank you. How's he? Is he doing? Like he's fine now, right? Is he fine, fine, or just kind of fine? Yeah, he recovered. He he he's at work right now. Um, you know, and uh, it, it it certainly is a situation when you've lost a hundred pounds, all of your muscle mass, and you've been in the hospital for nine months. You have some dings. So you know, he's lost some of his pancreas. His his bottom of his feet are numb. He's got some congestive heart failure. But you know, we still travel all around the world. Egypt is still on his bucket list, and um, you know I'm I'm certainly happy that I'm holding his hand instead of a you know an urn of his ashes. I imagine you're not going to go on that cruise ship though again. You know what? I mean, that's what a lot of people ask. Like, do do we have a fear of travel now because he acquired a superbug? Well, you can get a superbug anywhere. In fact, you know, even in a hospital or clinic setting. So the most important thing you can do is wash your hands with soap and water and try not to, you know, touch your nose and your mouth with your hands and things like that. And if you've got, you know, a cold or any other infection, you know, you should stay home and rest instead of, you know, like coughing and sneezing on other people and spreading it. Is it hard for you to kind of exist in normal life, so to speak, or do you just kind of see disease everywhere? Like, oh, that person didn't wash their hand. Well, certainly I look at the world in a different way than most people because, you know, I, I see uh, I see microbes, uh, you know, viral and, and bacterial pathogens. But, but they're, they're also, it's important to realize that that both bacteria and viruses can can be our friends too. I mean, in the case of my husband, we used viruses to attack his bacteria to save his life. Um, so I have, you know, really as an infectious disease epidemiologist, until recently, I saw viruses as the enemy. And um, now we realize that you know bacteria can are important parts of our microbiomes, and we need to cultivate them and and you know eat for them because we're we're made up of mostly microbes. I don't know if this is a terrible question or a brilliant question, but here it comes. Who's really the dominant organization on dominant organism on the planet? Us or viruses? Well, it's funny, you know. Um, Louis Pasteur, who is you know a famous microbiologist, um, said, "Gentlemen, it is the microbes that will inherit the world." So uh, you know, and I, I, I certainly think he should have said. Ladies and gentlemen, but <laughs> it was you know the 1800s or something like that. Um, but certainly, in terms of who's who's running the show right now, I would say it's like it's it's bacteria, and um, you know because again, the superbug crisis is going to be killing 10 million people per year by 2050. That's more than motor vehicle accidents, more than cancer, and so um, we've been lofty at thinking we're human beings, we're big, we're smart. We've got everything under control. We'll just we'll just have a new antibiotic and throw it at that thing. Well, you know what? Now our antibiotics are not working anymore because we've overused them. And so the microbes, I think, are, are more powerful than us at this point. How do you combat that kind of sentiment that, like, for me, I just had, where I heard you say the number of deaths by 2050, and I think, oh, wow, that's a lot. That's a real big problem. And then two seconds later, I think, oh, we'll get it fixed. Well, you know, I used to 
think that we'd get it fixed but until my husband was like, you know, lying there dying of a superbug infection that we used to be able to treat like a couple decades ago. So I, I think we can't be complacent because nowadays, you know, now that I co-direct the first phage therapy center in North America, um, I'm getting calls from people like a guy who stepped on a nail who's about to lose his foot because there's no antibiotics to treat his infection anymore. Or somebody who's had a simple surgery like a hip or a knee replacement and now they've got a super bug and you know they're about to have their leg amputated and you know in in that certain case we were able to get phage therapy to save this guy's leg and um you know it's um it's a real problem um and and we we really are don't have a grip on this right now as a society I want to thank Dr. Strathy so much for joining us. If you want to connect with her, we have linked to her on our social media accounts. We're profoundly pointless on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we've also included her information on the RSS feed that's on this podcast. Okay, now let's go ahead and give John Shaw a call. Hello? Do you generally feel like your friends push you to be a better person? Uh, that's a great question. Um... I don't know if it's a better person. I mean, I don't, you know, I think we're we're both at a point in our life to where I don't think we have friends because we want them to make us better. I would actually you say that I mean? most men's friends are a detriment to their success. <laughs> well, I always like to think of, you know, think of like your your wife. Does she really like any of your guy friends? No. <laughs> That's usually a pretty good uh, character, you know judge for me why do you think that is that women tend to have friends real friends who make their lives better and are supportive and men their best friends basically ruin their lives that's a great question i I don't know if i know the answer to that i mean i think there's a lot of different ways you can ruin your friend's life whether you know it or not should you have that other shot should you you know coerce somebody into to doing something that they shouldn't do knowing that it's a bad decision but you let them do it anyways Yeah, because I would actually look at my life and any of the bad decisions that I've made, one of my so-called friends has been involved in that bad decision and has generally encouraged it. I mean, there are countless times where I can remember, I mean, nothing bad per se, but things that you would entice me to do and I would do it. And it it could have turned out bad possibly, it didn't, but, you know, and it's like, why did I do that? It makes no sense. Yeah, because it's a peer pressure because guys' friends are generally assholes. Like, hey, eat this napkin. It'll taste great. <laughs> I do remember when he told you to eat a napkin. <laughs> Idiot. Here's my question for you. Are you a germaphobe? Like, do you think about all the diseases and infections and viruses and just general junk that is out there right now? Uh, 100% not at all. Do you wash your hands? How often do you wash your hands? I mean, I'll wash my hands, you know, after I go to the bathroom, you know, I have a young kid. So after, you know, you change their diaper, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I, I'm not a germaphobe by, by any stretch of the imagination. I, I'm like the opposite. I don't even know what the opposite of it is, but I'm the opposite. See, I won't even wash my hands after I go to the bathroom if I go number one. Well, we both know that it doesn't hang. All right. You're not packing like eight inches of, you know, desert heat in there. No. No, <laughs> no. I've never actually measured it. Have you measured yours? Oh my god! I, I would think at some point. I think every man does. No, at I. Some point. I can honestly say I never have. I've never measured it. Now, whether that's because I don't really want to know, or because I've just never felt like I needed to measure it, because I've got you know, like it's adequate. I got two kids. I got the job done. You know, your wife's still with you for some reason. So there's that. Here's the question. If there is a guy out there, but for guys out there who measure it, do you think that they've measured it multiple times, like hoping it would be bigger? Or do you think they measured it just once and leave it alone? I mean, this person remained nameless, but there was a suite mate my sophomore year of college who claimed that he would measure it every week. uh, And then he would base certain things upon his growth or not growth. What? What the hell are you talking about? I'm just, I'm just saying that I, I knew somebody or I know somebody. Yeah, we that got that part. We got that part. Certain things. Like what certain things? Like he would measure his penis every week. Okay. Yeah, we got that part. But what are you talking about certain things? <laughs> I 
I don't really want to discuss this. Just give us enough specifics audience. so we can understand what you're talking about. It, it, it would determine the kind of woman he would want to try to uh, take on a date, if that makes any sense. Okay, just explain the whole thing. So basically, uh, he would measure his penis every week, and then he would decide, like, if it was looking bigger, he would go for hotter women, or he would go for <laughs> what? <laughs> exactly. If it if he was feeling good and confident, then he was a different kind of person. If it and I don't even know. I I never got into specifics. Obviously, do you still but talk? To, do you still huh? talk to this person? I haven't talked to them since I graduated college. So oh, we need to find out more about what's going on here. Because how much of a difference could it be from week to week? I listen. You know. I mean, you know how it is. You're you're nineteen twenty. Whatever we were. I mean, who knows if he was even telling the truth. You think most men lie about their measurement? Oh, 100%. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree 100%. It's almost to the point where you have to lie just to make up for the lie. The older I get, I mean, I I, I think it's true, right? Like, especially for men. And maybe a woman can chime in on this if any woman listens to this podcast. But it's always like the men who brag and boast and, and shit that are... Usually the the weakest or the dumbest or the or the smallest or the most disappointing. I would say that there's probably three to four things that someone is guaranteed to lie about. How much money they make, how big their penis is, and how tall they are. Yeah, I mean, I think you I, – I think those are – I'm trying to think of more, but I can't really – I mean, those are like the three that are like for sure, I think. Yeah, can't really. Good contribution. Thanks for that. <laughs> See, why do you have to be rude? Why do you have to? I'm just pointing out that's that not rude. Jab in there? I didn't. There was no jab there. I was just pointing out that that was not a, that that was a good contribution. You take it how however you want. I merely <laughs> I merely pointed out the fact that you added nothing to that conversation. Are you ready for your segment? Let's do it. But for, uh, first, I want to say that I don't have to grow uh, a nasty stash because I won the Facebook poll. Just FYI. Okay, great. I didn't so, even look at it. Let's get to some shout outs here. Uh, Good week once again. Thank you to everyone who liked, subscribed, all that good stuff. A um, couple of early shout outs though. So we got a we asked last episode about these Aldi carts and why you have to pay for them, and we got an answer from Discbird. Uh, I had to make sure that I said that correctly because I could have gone real bad. But uh, so Discbird explained it. It makes sense now that it's more of a like security measure so people won't steal the carts. Makes okay. sense. Yeah, and for people who might not know what exactly John is talking about, basically we got into this huge argument, and I have a massive pet peeve with the idea of having to pay someone, of having to pay a business in order to pay them, like a gym membership where you have to pay to register and then you pay monthly dues, and we got really upset about Aldi charging people to use their carts when they go shopping, and then somebody who John just mentioned explained that it's basically because of overhead functions and that they don't have to pay someone to go to collect the carts. It's not about someone stealing the carts, which makes perfect sense, but I'm still not shopping at Aldi. <laughs> Likewise. No offense, Aldi, but you are not a, a store I'm going to spend any money at. Shout out to Long John Silvers, baby. So anyway, so uh, some shout outs to Danny, Wes, Lori, Jill, Nora, uh, Joe, Archie, Roger Ellis, which is a pretty bass, badass name. Uh, Frederick, Alex, Merrill, uh, Corey, Podknife, Jay Dillon, uh, Mal, maybe the coolest Twitter name, uh, Diesel Viper. Ooh, <laughs> that is good. That is good. And then, and then want to give a, a special shout out to Logan, James, and Nate, who are uh, students at the Cal- Colorado School <laughs> <Nate>. of Mines. <laughs> I sent John a special email about this shout out. For these three guys, and I was like, oh, he's doing good. Oh, there he fucked it up. There well, he for, did it. For some reason, my brain wanted to say California. So listen. Uh, so yeah, so Logan, James, and Nate uh, at the Colorado School of Mines who uh, kind of get involved, make their own top five list, kind of play along with us. It's badass. Thanks to everyone <laughs> for uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, love. Keep subscribing, liking. And uh, I guess we'll keep posting our stupid shit online until uh, literally one week. We just get no interactions and figure that it's just time to close up shop. Yeah, when Logan sent me that video, just special shout out to you guys. That was really cool. Uh, we really appreciate that. All right. So uh, obviously with the Super Bowl just having passed, um, 
I want to know if you were named Super Bowl MVP, which would uh, would you be one of those jackasses that stands up and says, I'm going to Disney World? Yes, because I am guarantee you that Disney is cutting them one hell of a check to say that, and I would take yeah, that money. I wasn't really thinking about it from the money standpoint, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, that's not even a question. I'm sure all those people are like, I'm not going to do that, and then Mickey Mouse comes through with a big check, and they're like, yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Lifetime passes and anything else they want. I'm I don't sure. care about lifetime passes. I bet that's a. I bet they cut them a big check. I wouldn't be surprised. That's a million plus. I was just going to ask you. What do you think? A million? Five million? Uh, Four hundred billion? I don't know, dude. All right. Well, good talk. Um, yeah, I got uh, kind of Snickers or Twix? Oh, Twix. But Snickers is rising in popularity. Look, I used to be a solid Twix man because they gave you two of those. And you felt like you were getting more candy. But Snickers is really stepping up its game. I feel like Twix might be going downhill. You don't see a lot of Twix commercials anymore. And Snickers is out there. Yeah, I'm not uh, not a fan of either, to be honest with you. But okay, good well, for you. Why'd you bring that up then? Uh, because it was a conversation that a few people at my uh, place of employment were having. And I'm like, you make good arguments for both. I'm going to see what the uh, the Messiah has to say about it. So were you involved in this conversation about two things that you don't like, or were you eavesdropping? I was just, I was just listening. Okay, so do you generally eavesdrop on people's conversations? I mean, if you're talking in my workspace, like, I mean, how am I not going to listen? How close were they to you? I mean, probably 10 feet. And that's pushing the limit of eavesdropping. Did you look over there and try to make eye contact? Or did you keep your head down? I mean, I think I looked over and like nodded, like you know, like in agreement or disagreement. Like they knew that I was. Well, were they a looking? Part, but not a part of the conversation. Did they look at you while they were talking, or were you just like the awkward guy, kind of trying to get into the conversation? <laughs> First of all, I was not the awkward guy. I was just, I was just sitting there doing work. Were you really doing work, or were you just listening to this conversation? Let's move on. Um, no, I just want to know the answer. I want to know if you were lurking and creeping people out or if you were actively involved in the conversation. I, I would say that I was neither. I wasn't I wasn't trying to eavesdrop and I wasn't lurking. I just happened that uh, just happened to get in my vicinity and I had nothing to add, so I was just like, "Oh, okay." And then that was it. But I it made me wonder because I've never really thought about you know, Snickers versus Twix before, because I think they both suck, so. Okay, all right. All right, last one. Uh, Martin Lawrence or Will Smith? Oh, wait a minute. What are we talking? Are we talking now? Are we talking we're, overall? Yeah, we're talking, like, overall. Man, I would have I been strong Will Smith. I really believe that Will Smith was one of the paragon, paragons of the human race in terms of, like, the dude was athletic, he was tall. He was a good-looking guy. He was smart. Like, if we were going to have some genetic material to move forward into another planet, we would have to go with Will Smith. I think that he was up there really high in terms of that. But in the last wow. couple of years, oh, I'd have, I'm really leaning towards Martin Lawrence right now. <laughs> I mean, I, I would go with Will Smith regardless. You go with who? I'm going Will Smith regardless. He's I made mean. some shitty movies, and he looks desperate right now. I mean, I don't know his financial situation, but I'm not entirely sure I'd say he's desperate. No, he's just desperate for attention. I think he's got plenty of money, but he looks desperate for attention. And here's the other thing. His kids are weird, and the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And that's why I'm just wondering if he's just like a vi or just a product of really good marketing and stuff like that. <laughs> because how can you be that normal and then you got some weird-ass kids? I'm actually kind of – I mean you're actually having a, a, a real conversation about this here. Yeah, it's a legitimate question, right? Like what, what I mean, what's yeah, really I, going I on with Will Smith? Through his filmography and it's like he has made some really shitty movies. Yeah, he really has. But he also has made some great ones. So it's like – but and then you got me thinking is it just because of you know like his promo team and like getting him the right roles? Like I don't know. All right. Um, are you done, or what's going on here? Yeah, let's move on to uh, to our top five. I'm getting hungry. Okay. Well, that's what do you mean getting hungry. <laughs> Always. It hungry. goes along with a top five if you just intro I it. I know, but I wanted to make fun of you a little bit. <laughs> I don't feel fine. like I've really been mean enough to you for this episode. I feel like I need to step that up a little bit. Um, 
People don't like when you're mean to me. They've said it. Who said it? I, I, I could get 10 people on record saying it. But are they people who are friends with you or directly work with you? Uh, both. Okay, that doesn't count. Oh, all right. Well, I mean, they still listen. They still count as listeners. <laughs> That's true. Uh, okay, so anyway, getting back on track. Our top five is top five breakfast food. What's your number five? What are you uh, my doing? My number five is a breakfast burrito. That is ridiculous. You're going to put a what? breakfast burrito at number five? You yep. out of your fucking mind? I guess so. Why would you put a breakfast burrito that low? Oh. <laughs> uh, because I think the rest of my list is, is, is badass. Okay. See, I have this whole thing about breakfast, and I'll just say this now. I think that breakfast is a great idea. Like, every time in my mind I think, ooh, breakfast, that's going to be such a good idea. But then it's really hard to get good breakfast. So much of it is just, like, mediocre average. It's hard to screw it up, and it's really hard to make it good. That's why, for me, my number five is pancakes and sausage. I have no issues with that. They, they go great together. Now, are you a heavy syrup guy or, or like, light syrup? No, I'm not putting syrup on pancakes or sausage. I don't waste the flavor of meat. <laughs> All right, Paul Bunyan. When I, when I get some good, solid, thick meat in my mouth, I don't need anything else. Just let me enjoy that delicious meat. Now, when you, when you like your sausage, do you like it a little undercooked? Do you like it really, like, hard and well done? No, I want rock hard sausage in my mouth. <laughs> is that what you, is that what you were looking for? You got it. There you go. What's your number four? Uh, I have a breakfast sandwich. What? <sighs> you can't even argue with it because it's a real thing and it's fucking delicious. I don't disagree with you, but it's basically the same thing as a breakfast burrito, except inferior Not even to close. the breakfast You're burrito. Insane. Not what? even close. <sighs> Which one's better? A, a breakfast sandwich, by far. What's on the breakfast sandwich that's not on the breakfast burrito? The breakfast burrito is superior in every way. It's more portable. You can get more stuff in there. It's bigger. It's generally less expensive. It's better in every way. Yeah, I, I have to disagree. I'm a, I love, there's nothing better than a good breakfast sandwich. Okay, well, obviously there is because it's not number one on your list. Uh, my number... <laughs> Yeah, I got you with logic on that one, didn't I? Yeah, you did. <laughs> God damn it. Uh, God damn it. <laughs> my number four is just cereal. I mean, any kind of cereal, but I think that it's a strong enough contender. You have to put it somewhere on the list of breakfast food. There's some really good cereals. Yeah, I'm not the biggest cereal guy, but, I mean, it's it's fine to be on a top five list. I think it should be. Okay. Did you put it on yours? Uh, no, I did not. Okay. <laughs> what's, what's your number three, then? Um, I have cinnamon, cinnamon rolls. Ooh, I forgot about that. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's yep. pretty good. Okay, that's legit. My number three is uh, just an omelet. Okay, I mean, what kind of omelet? I'm a partial to a ham and cheese. Give me a little chorizo in there, though. That's pretty good stuff. Chorizo is where it's at, man. Yeah, it is. Um, I think that omelet is the best version of the egg-related breakfast food. Yeah, I would say, well, I don't know. We'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to my opinion on that in a minute. Okay. What's your number two? Uh, I combine them, uh, sausage and bacon. Okay. So. That's pretty, that's, I, I, I don't, I don't disagree. The only thing that I have is it's a little bit more of like, it's a little bit more of a breakfast side dish. I don't feel like it's a full meal necessarily. That's why I didn't really put it higher, but I don't have any disagreements with you if you're going to make a meal out of it. Give me some bacon and some some nice, well done sausage to put in my mouth, and I'll I'll uh, you know you'll that's a good day. You'll slurp that up any day, huh? <laughs> Clogging one artery at a time. Uh, my number two is waffles. Okay, see, I left. They're on my honorable mention, but man, they're man. If you, did, I, I'm not necessarily a big fan of just waffles. It's like everything that goes on waffles that makes them good. Well, I put waffles way ahead of – I got pancakes isn't on my list because pancakes are – I mean that's obviously a staple. But when's the last time you went out and really had like, ooh, those were really good pancakes? There's not a lot of places that can make really good pancakes. Yeah, I mean because they're just – they're pretty generic, right? I mean there's, there's not a whole lot to them. Uh, Pancake House in Scottsdale, Arizona and Kiki's in Orlando, Florida. 
great pancakes. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that my pancakes are 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 the best. Yeah, well, that's not true whatsoever. Also, are you in a like? Are you in your shed? What the fuck are you doing? I'm in my basement. Doing what? Like rearranging the toolbox? No, my wife is seen a scene to it that she's gonna redo like the bar area while I'm on the phone. So, oh, okay. So that's why you hear a bunch of click clack and stuff. Okay, all right. I mean, there's probably other places in your house you could have gone, but still, that's fine. Um, <laughs> what's your number one? What's your number um, one? I have. I, I mean, I, I just have eggs as my number one. Just regular, plain old eggs. No, I mean, I mean, if we're, if I'm gonna personalize it, like I'm, I'm a huge fan of scrambled eggs. Okay. Do you add anything to the scrambled eggs, or you just straight scramble them? I mean, I, I might add, like you said, some chorizo. Um, some jalapenos, you know, some peppers, things like that. But I don't know, man. So sometimes scrambled eggs are just, just are just great, like just by themselves. If you're gonna make yourself some scrambled eggs, how many eggs are you putting in there? Uh, I usually go four. Okay, that's legit. If you went two, I was gonna get angry. That's a waste of scrambled eggs. But yeah, if you went I like, mean, to be honest, I could probably eat eight. Oh, I've gone ten. I've gone ten <laughs> scrambled eggs at one time. I mean, that was, a, was pretty high, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you're eating responsibly. Yeah, it's really not that bad for you. I mean, if you eat 10 straight eggs, it's only like 700 calories. I mean, it's... Now, are you one of these health nuts that, like, gets rid of the egg no. yolk, or are you doing the whole, whole egg? No, I do the whole egg. I'm not wasting... It's, it's not about health. It's just about lack of effort on my part. My number one <laughs> is the breakfast burrito. I don't see how you can top the breakfast burrito. I really don't. I mean, it's good. I mean, listen, it's on my top five. I just, it's not better than the breakfast sandwich. I'm sorry. Okay. What's in your honorable mention? Uh, so let's see. I have a, bu- <laughs> a bunch of stuff, actually. Uh, biscuits and gravy. Oh, man. That really should have been on the list. That's good. Uh, that really should have been on our list. I had pancakes on there. I had waffles, cereal, yogurt slash parfaits. Get the fuck out of here. All right. Um, I have fruit, cinnamon toast. Okay, there's a lot of good ones. And the cinnamon yeah. toast is definitely a candidate up there. Yogurt parfait. Actually, I do kind of like those. It's not... Maybe my initial reaction was a little bit too hard. I mean, I think pancakes is the biggest one that a lot of people would say that we left off. But I just don't think they're that good. Not when you can have waffles. I mean, I, I just... To me, like I said, both plain are just okay. It's all the shit that you add to them. That makes them good. Now, and you have when you have waffles, do you want someone to fill all your holes, or do you just kind of want them to spread it around? However, oh, there isn't one hole that isn't filled, and I'm talking about like with butter and syrup. So you want them? You want all your holes filled all the time? Give me all the sticky stuff. I I want to be dripping. Okay, that's going to go ahead and do it for this episode of Profoundly Pointless. I really don't think pancakes are that great, man. I really don't see it. Right? Tell me. I want to know. Send us your pancake recommendations. Because I love a good pancake, but they're just hard to find. So let us know what you think are some of the best places to eat podcast or to eat, yeah, to eat podcasts. That, that's that's an intelligent saying. Let us know what you think are some of the best places to eat pancakes. And if you get a chance, like, download, subscribe, share. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. Love hearing from you guys. We want to keep doing that more and more and more. And I, I think, you know, I don't, I don't really have any other thoughts right now.